And so there's tension already when James launches into verse 14, which is so tough, right? He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? They have no works is another way to put that, right? He says, can such faith save them? He is asking us a question and he is building a tension right here. And what he's saying to us is, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure that the faith that you have in Christ is actually something that has taken hold in your life and is actually creating the kind of disciple that God wants to have in this world? Or is it this dead faith that is essentially something where we say a bunch of theological positions, we believe the right thing, we say, you know, what we think we should, and then we're kind of in, we punch our card to heaven, and it's something that doesn't necessarily affect the world. And he says two things about that. What good is it? So in other words, he's saying that kind of faith, the faith that just is, is about um, uh, uh, believing something, a theological set of beliefs, but not necessarily letting it be fully uh, born into our deeds and our works, is useless. And then he asks, can that faith even save you? I mean, that's like, that is like a real tense way to begin our, our, our uh, sermon today. But this is the kind of stuff that James does. He puts it like this. And Paul uses language like this too. There are other times where Paul says, like in, in 2 Corinthians, at the end of his letter, he's giving like final warnings. And he says, uh, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? So Paul is even saying to the Corinthians when he writes that letter to them, you should check your heart, man. You should look inside and see if the faith that you have is going to make any difference in this world. And if it's going to pass the test, I don't know about you, but I have anxiety about that. I have anxiety about that because I did struggle, I think, as a believer when I was growing up on whether or not I was saved or not saved. It was a tough decision for me. I didn't feel like I was a very good person. Now, some of you guys are really good people. So, you, you know, for you, maybe you don't have that same level of anxiety, but I was a terrible person. I kept looking around thinking, like, is everybody else perfect and I'm the only one who's struggling with all this stuff? Like, am I the one who's struggling with anger? Am I the one who's struggling with, you know, with uh, pornography? Am I the only one who's struggling with, with lust? Am I the only one who's struggling, like, to, to rein in their tongue? Like, these are things I was thinking about as a teenager, as a young person. I'm looking around a church of people that seem to not be struggling with anything, and I felt like I was the only one who's struggling with this stuff. I feel like most of us probably have had that experience at some point. We've looked around and thought, I don't know if I fit in this place. Okay, this would be another good time to let you know that this is an imperfect church for imperfect people. And we don't want you to exactly have everything figured out. If you think you've got everything figured out and you think you're perfect, well, then you've just sinned with pride. So you're now disqualified from that perfection that you thought you had. So, um, but I, I don't know if you felt that way. Like I would be testing myself all the time and seeing that I have personally failed. Right? And so what I don't want to say is that I don't think that Paul and James are trying to get you to question whether you have put your faith into Christ, whether you have put your faith into Christ or not, is a, a simple act of you just basically surrendering to Jesus and saying, I want you to take over, I want you to be in charge. And then there's a question of becoming the disciple that God has called you to be and actually allowing your life to be surrendered and to come under uh, God's, um, you know, God's ownership, his leadership in your life. But there's two things happening here. And so when Paul says, hey, you should test yourself, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith, test yourself. Do you realize that Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? What he's saying to them is like, you know, maybe you made that commitment, 
but like nothing in your life has gotten rolling in that direction. You haven't put your any part of your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so you look just the same, you act just the same, you talk just the same. Like things should be changing as you become more like Jesus. Man, that's a tough word for all of us. Okay? I want you to know that if you're struggling with that, you're just like everybody else in the room. Everybody else in the room who looks perfect to you, I guarantee you they're not. I have sat down with almost every single person in this room, and I've heard the stories and testimonies and where people have come from and where they're at and what they're struggling with. And I promise you that if you think you're struggling harder with something than anyone else in the room, there's somebody else who's struggling with the exact same thing just as much as you are. But we have to step back and ask the question, like, is this faith real in my life or not? And this is a tough, especially tough question to ask, especially if you grew up in the church. Because maybe you were indoctrinated from the time that you were little to believe a certain set of values. And maybe you've taken those values in the best way that you can. You've kind of placed them into your life. And maybe there was never a moment where you actually came under the lordship of Jesus Christ and gave your life to him. But you live a life that looks a little bit like what a Christian will be living. Okay, that happens all the time. It is a huge problem for Minnesotans. For all of us who grew up in a church who didn't necessarily have the gospel implanted in us when we were young, we got indoctrinated quickly and we got sort of inoculated to the full gospel of Christ, which says, I cannot do this on my own. And unless I give this full thing to Jesus and ask him to do it, it will be a worthless endeavor. I mean, James has essentially been building to this point and saying, your religion is worthless unless you are fully in Christ and doing it through his power. That is a tough word. That means some of us need to find humility even when we have been a Christian our whole lives to step back and say, maybe I haven't actually given my life over to Christ and accepted him for myself. Do you feel this tension? <laughs> I feel it all the time. Do you feel this tension? And James is saying there is two groups of people in this church, okay? So this church that James is leading was a church that just blew up. It went from nobody to thousands of people in weeks, okay? So there were people coming from all over the place, joining this church, jumping into this community, excited about what was going on. And some of them were getting it and some of them weren't. And so he's communicating this to the whole church saying, look, there is a tension here, and you need to figure this out. Are you in or are you out? Are you, have you given your life over to Christ fully? Have you laid down your own works, your own stuff that's going on in your life? And if you've given yourself over to Christ, and if you have, then that means that good works will flow out of a life that is surrendered to Jesus. Man. So Paul says, it is for grace that we have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God. It is not by works so that no one can boast. He says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Now, you might think that there's a tension between these two people, but you have to put it into the context. So Paul, as he went around starting churches, he would kind of go to a new place, start a church, get something rolling, get some elders involved hand off the church to them, go to a new place, start a church, get it rolling, get some people who were ready to take over. He would hand off the church to them and he would move from place to place to place. Now, there was a group of people in the uh, Jewish world at the time 
who were going around behind Paul into all these churches and teaching sort of another gospel that kind of goes alongside of Paul's but adds some stuff to it, right? And they were basically coming in and saying, hey, we know that you're Christians, but we actually need you to become a little bit more Jewish to be on the varsity team. Right? So like you're in, you're in Christ, you're, you're saved, the Holy Spirit is in you, but you know, we just need a, you to do a couple more things to get on, you know, to get into the, the upper level leadership here at this church. We just need you to do a couple more things to get on the varsity team at this church. And so they would be preaching that everyone would need to become circumcised and that they would have to eat a certain way and they would have to follow some of the Jewish customs that come along with where Christianity came out of. Okay, so they were still holding on to the religion that they had come out of and they would come behind Paul, and Paul would start this church and get things going, and there would be non-Jewish people accepting Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. And these people would come in behind Paul, and they'd be like, listen, you need to have a little surgery. We need to get you circumcised, or we need you to eat a certain way. Like, we need you to do certain, a couple things. And so Paul was then fighting this doctrine that was going around behind him in all these churches. So when he says, faith alone in Christ alone, it is faith in Jesus plus nothing that gets you saved He's speaking directly to those people who were trying to make this about religion. James, on the other hand, is looking at a church of people who are, who it blew up quickly. It's probably a little bit shallow. There are some people who are struggling and, and under, uh, you know, having some uh, issues under uh, the persecution of Rome and the temple. And these people he talked to in the first chapter or two, and now he's getting to the rest of the church, which is shallow. It's people who have said, I'm in, I love this idea, I get, get to be part of this community, I get to be fed by what's going on here, I'm being taken care of by these people, this is great, but they haven't actually made the commitment to really follow Jesus. So James is poking, pushing those people to say, are you really in the faith? It's not enough to have a childhood version of faith now that you're an adult, you need to grow up and understand that your faith turns into something. And so that tension is there, but I think sometimes we think it's more than it is. And we actually see this kind of come to a head in Acts chapter 15, if you want to go back and look at it later. I'm kind of a history nerd, so I love this stuff. But essentially around the same time that James writes this letter, there is what they call the Council of Jerusalem. And it's a powwow between the main leaders of the church, uh, Paul, Peter, James, uh, and they get together and they basically discuss the question, can you be saved and not be a Jewish person? That's what they get together to discuss. And at the end of it, they basically decide, look, who are we to judge what God is doing? He's giving the Holy Spirit to believers who aren't Jews. So this means that we can become a follower of Jesus without going through all the Jewish customs that we've, been, that we've grown up with. He actually asked the Jews to sort of shed their childhood faith so that they can have an adult type of faith and be, exist in a community of people that comes together that wouldn't want to be together. You got non-religious people and religious people finding Jesus together, and they're building this beautiful community, right, where they're all sort of shedding their childhood faith and stepping into a real adult faith that's going to actually change the world, okay? That, that's what our church looks like. The backgrounds of people here are, like, all over the place. I'm, I'm, I've sat and met with people, like, do I fit in this church? Like, yes, you do. People who are recovering from being Baptists or recovering from being Lutherans, recovering from being Catholics, recovering from being charismatic. I'm probably sure I left somebody out there, but we're all recovering from some sort of childhood faith that we grew up with. We're shedding that. And we're saying, like, 
I want to dig into God's word. I want to put him in the proper place in my life. I want to come under his leadership. I want to surrender to Jesus. I want the Holy Spirit to be working in my life. And I want to live this thing out the way that I see it lived out in Jesus's life. This is what we're being called to in James. And it requires you to step back and look inside and say, is this a real faith? He's going to define what it looks like for him to have a real adult faith, to shed the childhood faith, and to really hold on to what God is doing in your life. So there's a lot of tension. He's going to tell us that faith without works is useless. In other words, it doesn't save you, which gives you anxiety if you grew up thinking that faith alone and Christ alone is what you need. He's taking it and adding something to the equation um, and challenging people who have this childlike faith to go further. So this is what he says in the next verse. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action, is dead. If it doesn't have action with it, it's dead. If you don't actually live it out or do it, it's dead. And I mean, look, we just had the polar vortex, right? It just got down to negative, I don't know, it felt like, I know that it's, it felt like the exact opposite of hell, which I think should make this a very holy place to live. But if you went outside, you felt like it was hell. It was brutal, right? Minus whatever, 60, 50, I don't even know. One morning, I couldn't even get my truck. My truck was like, rrr, rrr, nope, not happening, right? It was brutal. Now, if you were driving down the road and there was somebody standing on the corner that you passed by on that day, and you said to them, hey, bro, be warm and well-fed, you killed them, right? Like anyone outside for that length of time would be dead overnight. You didn't make it through that night, right? I, I kept checking the pipes downstairs to make sure that there was nothing blowing up in our house. Like I kept wondering, is the heat going to keep going? There were people north of us who had their heat turned off because the gas wasn't working, and they were telling us to put ours down to 63, and I was like having angst. Do I, put, I guess I need to do what they're telling me to do, right? Like if, you, if your faith says be warm and well-fed to somebody who's standing right in front of you, that's, that's not a faith that bears anything out in the world, right? And I think sometimes we get caught up in like trying to solve the world's problems, right? To, to, we want to start, solve hunger in the world. We want to make sure that everybody in this world is fed. And you know what? Actually, if you look at the statistics, we're getting closer and closer to a world where everyone has access to food. Like the amount of people that are hungry right now and the amount of people that are hungry 30 years ago, it has gone way down in 30 years. And so we are actually making a difference globally. But there are a lot of times where somebody's standing right in front of us and we're like ready to pray for them that God will come through for them. And in reality, it's us. God has said, if your faith is real, if it's something that's making a difference in the world, then you will take care of the person who's standing right in front of you. And sometimes that's easy if that's a stranger, but if it's your own family member or a friend or somebody you have baggage with, you're not really, taking care of the person who's right in front of you is actually a really hard thing to do. And he's saying your faith should be alongside of action, that it will make a difference in the world if you really are living this thing out. And if it's not accompanied by action, essentially it's not worth anything in the world. When he says it's dead, what, that translates to the word worthless. It's not doing anything for the kingdom of God in the world. It's not doing anything for the person in front of you. And it's not doing anything for you. Okay, so he, he challenges us to think like, 
You know, if we're one of those people, hey, bro, good luck, you know, that is not the kind of faith that we've been called to. You know, Jesus talks about the end time and when, when uh, he is sort of seated in that, that, that place in front of all of humanity and he gets to a point where he's judging us finally, right? And he gives us this picture of the son of man, right? Talking about himself coming into his glory and separating people, sheep from goats, okay? So this is what he says. He says, when the Son of Man comes into his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison. You came to visit me. The righteous will answer, Lord, when did we do this? When were you hungry? When did we feed you? When were you thirsty and we gave you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger needing clothes? When did we clothe you? When did, were you sick or in prison and we came to visit you? The king replied, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. This like magical thing that happens when we deal with the person in front of us in faith. We take care of what is going on in their life. That we're actually doing it for Jesus. Like I 100% know that if Jesus physically walked into this room and needed anything, we would all fall over ourselves to give him anything he needed. Right, Jesus, you hungry? Let's go eat some chicken, right? Like you need some clothes? You need a new tunic? Hey, take mine, right? I'd be, I'd be taking my shirt off. Like, hey, take it. Like, Jesus needed anything, right? You're thirsty? Hold on. Hey, somebody just grab some water. Like we would go out of our way to take care of Jesus' physical needs if you were standing in front of us. And yet we have people in our lives all the time who are standing right in front of us, asking us to step in and help them. And our faith is useless if we don't step in and do what God has called us to do. And in fact, we are magically doing it for him in that scenario. And then he says, he, he, he continues on. That's not the whole thing, right? He says, the, the king will reply, hey, whenever you did it for the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's pretty intense. Jesus is like, hey, uh, James is intense. You think James is intense? Let me take that to a whole other level for you. Right? He says, for I was hungry, you gave me nothing. I was thirsty, you didn't bring a drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you didn't look after me. And they will also answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? They're like, Jesus, we didn't, we, what are you talking about? There was never a time where we didn't take care of your physical needs. And he will say to them, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of me, you, of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And I, I, I just, just keen in, it says, then they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry? He says, there, there are a bunch of people, these goats, that will call him Lord and still not follow through on what he has called them to do. He's just saying, this, this faith is not always easy. I'm calling you to do some hard things. Take care of the people in your life that are all around you that need your faith to be acted out in a real world. These are the works that come with having a faith that is really saving you. And Man, I think sometimes our faith, it's, it's like when we believe something and then we act on it, that is the time when it really became real. Right? That's the moment where it really became real. 
I think uh, for guys, we, especially if you have kids, if you're a guy and you have kids, you sort of understand this, right? So like your wife gets pregnant and, you know, you have nine months of going through the, the thing of kind of waiting for this baby. You're looking at pictures of sonograms. You're, you know, you're listening, you're feeling the kick and everything. So for you, there's like a real thing happening. This baby's coming. You know, you're probably painting or setting up a nursery or working alongside your wife to get ready. And, but there's a moment there where the baby actually comes and they put the baby into your arms. And as a, as a husband, it's real the moment you're actually holding that baby. There's a physical thing happening when you actually hold that baby. It's almost not real completely for you. It's real. You believe that this baby's coming. You're changing your life. You're getting ready for it. But actually, the day you hold that child, you're like, whoa, everything is different now. Guess what? For mom, it was different from the first moment, right? Mom was feeling a physical connection from day one. Dad was feeling a physical connection when he actually was able to physically hold the baby. Like some of us need to actually physically work out our faith for it to become real to us. It is a set of beliefs until we get to a moment where it is acted out in a real world. I, this was not any more real in my entire life than last March. January, February, actually November, December, January, February, I felt so, I felt so much tension about what God was calling me to do. I was like, I, I don't want to listen to you, God. You are going to ruin everything that's going on in my life right now. Stop calling me to do stuff. And he was just making me feel uncomfortable. He was just pushing me enough to ask the question, what were we doing? What were me and my family, what were we doing in the call that God had placed on our lives? And I remember struggling with this. Like, am I supposed to just continue being a youth pastor forever? Uh, should I look at other positions? Should I try to move my family? Like, I don't know what to do, and I don't really like this conversation. I'd rather just leave everything the way it is so that way nothing changes in my life. Anyone ever felt that? I feel that tension all the time. And God was saying, no, I want you to go do something. I want you to go and start a church. And I was like, you're not telling me to do that. That's not, no. <laughs> we need health insurance. And like, I don't know what, do you get paid as a church planter? I don't. And what about like, what if no one comes? Thank you for coming, by the way. Like, what if everyone's like, like, and we were struggling with it, struggling with it, struggling with it. Finally, I remember me and my wife were, were praying about it and talking about it. And we got to this point, it was in early March where she just said like, God's telling us to do this. We need to go for it. And I was like, no, he's not. Ah. And we made that decision. We're going to do this. This is what God's calling us to. And the next day, I went in and resigned. It became real when I stepped foot into the office and said, I think God's calling me to just plant a church, and so I need to resign my position. Like, there was an act that went along with faith. I believed God was doing something, and the next day, I went in and did something about it. And my pastor looked at me, and he's like, well, do you know what you're going to do? And I was like, nope. And he was like, how are you going to, is this going to get funded? I don't know. Will anyone show up? I'm not sure. Where's it going to be? I don't know. <laughs> but I know God's called me to do it. So that, was the, that was the moment where the faith became real because we, because it was acted on. That was the moment where I stepped out of that office. and was like, what did I just do? Like, what? And then drove around, started in uh, Columbia Heights, and drove through Columbia Heights, Fridley, uh, New Brighton, Moundsview, Shoreview, uh, and then out to White Bear and prayed for the whole afternoon 
that God would give me a vision for where he wanted me to plant this church. Like that was the moment where the faith started to be acted on and became real. This is what James is talking about. He's like, you can't just have a faith where you just believe a bunch of uh, doctrines or you have the right theology. It has to work its way out into a real world. And when we step forward and do what God has called us to do, it becomes real. In that moment, we're holding the baby. In that moment, we've made a decision that's changed every single thing. And you guys know you're in these situations all the time where somebody's standing in front of you and you feel the tension. Should I say this? I feel like God's calling me to do this. I'm not sure how I should respond to this person, but I think I should do this. And the question is whether your faith is actually working its way out into kingdom building, Jesus sharing kind of acts that build other people and show them who Christ is. That's what faith looks like. That's what James is calling us to. He's saying it's worthless without the acts that go along with the faith that we have. He says, let me prove it to you, right? So he says, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. I have works, I have acts, right? He says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? He says, uh, demons have great theology and doctrine. They understand who Jesus is. They're aware of the fact that Jesus is the king, that he has the power. And they're afraid. They have an emotional response to the theology that they have in their life. I think a lot of us, we've like signed off on a set of doctrines. We said, hey, this is what it means to be a Christian. And I agree with this. And I want this in my life. And then we had an emotional experience. Well, guess what? The demons did the same thing. They're not saved. They're not working out their faith the way that God has called us to work out our faith. They're not doing the things that God has called them to do. Even as I preach this, it feels heretical. <laughs> but this is what James is pushing us towards. To actually work this thing out. That in fact, your faith may not be saving you. It may not be worth anything unless you are actually living it out. He goes on. He says, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that the faith, his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled. It says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And Abraham is credited as righteous by offering Isaac on the altar, actually acting on what God had called him to do. And this is a really messed up story, okay? But I want you to kind of put your head into Abraham's uh, life. And I want you to understand that, that this moment that is being called out by James happened at the end of Abraham's faith journey, right? Abraham had started off actually in a kind of a poor place. God said, go. He went but then he kind of decided he was going to help God along the way. And so every time God had made a promise and he felt like it wasn't being fulfilled, he kind of tried to do something to help God's process. And it always worked out poorly for him. And his faith was actually pretty poor for a while there. It wasn't doing so good. It wasn't really helping anybody. He was finding himself in all kinds of terrible situations because he couldn't get around the idea that God was actually going to follow through on things that he, he had said he would follow through on. And so when God at this point says, I want you to take your only son, the one who I promised that I would create a nation of people out of, and I want you to offer him to me, what does he do? It says he rises early in the morning. He gets a head start, gets going early, takes his son up to a place, begins to tie him down on the altar to 
to sacrifice him to God, which would have been absolutely insane. The, the, the people of the day who weren't God followers, the people of the day who were pagan worshipers, they were sacrificing their children to their God, and God thought that was an absolutely horrific thing and came against that every single time we see it in Scripture. But it says in Hebrews that Abraham put him on the altar believing that God would bring him back from the dead if he followed through on what God was calling him to do. That is a moment of faith that I don't think I have in me. And maybe you're looking at that and you're saying like, dude, I'm not Abraham, man. That is not a cool, like I can't, if God asked me to do something that hard, I'm just going to say no. Well, I want you to know that happened at the end of Abraham's story. Hopefully your faith grows into that. And Abraham stumbled all along the way as he was working out his faith in God. And finally, when he did do that, he still believed God would give him his son back. And then he's called a friend of God, man. A friend of God. I don't know about you, but that would make me feel great to be called a friend of God. That's the kind of faith that I want to have, to be known as someone who is God's friend. And maybe you can't relate to the, I don't know, the father of God's kingdom, right? The father of the Jews. Maybe Abraham's not a great example for you. It's probably not for me. I wasn't as good as Abraham, right? Well, he goes on. He gives us another one, another example. He says, in the same way, okay, so he's comparing this person to Abraham. He says, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. He chooses somebody who is a Moabite, which means nothing to us, but essentially these were the enemy of God's people. Someone who was a prostitute, a woman, not a man, right? Someone who would have been on the outside of the religious system looking in. Someone who had no reputation or standing in society, and he says, she figured out what it looked like to work out your faith. Like she's the one who did something that, you know, so you have the, this, the story of Abraham, which many of us are like, I don't get Abraham, man. I don't feel like I'm Abraham. Well, maybe if you don't feel like Abraham, maybe you can understand Rahab. Right? Outside looking in. Prostitute. Right? Completely lost in society. Not even really a member of her own tribe. Finding her way into God's tribe. She puts her life at risk for God's plan. She follows through on something that would get her killed if it was found out. And this is incredible because James is saying this gospel, right? This working out your faith and doing what God has called you to do and living out, letting your faith work its way out of you into the world is not just for the religious elite people. It's not just for you know, the, the people who are in good standing in society. It's not just for who we would look around the room and think those are the people who have the best faith in the room. It's for every single person. He gives you a man and a woman. He gives you someone who, uh, of, of high regard within the Jewish community and someone who starts off with no regard. He gives you a person who's the father of all nations and a person who, who is, a, is a prostitute. He compares these two people and says they have the same kind of faith. And you know what happens? Uh, if you go back and look at Jesus' lineage, you find Abraham right here. And ten generations later, Rahab is in the line of Jesus. Okay, she is, get, gets equal standing with Abraham because of the faith that she worked out. And so it's, it's not a, a situation where it's like, I, I want you to feel like you're inside or outside of the church. You're here. You're welcome. I want you to be here. But... 
I feel like I can't preach a sermon and help you think that you have faith when you have never put your faith into Christ. When you have never personally said, I need to follow Jesus for myself and surrendered yourself to his will. That James says, what it looks like is it works its way out into the world. That when people are standing in front of us, we act. That when people need the love that Christ brings into this world, that we do what he has called us to do. That when there are dangerous moments and scary moments and things we're not sure what to say or do, that we get brave and we do the things that God has called us to do. That's what it looks like to have a faith that makes a difference in the world that is not useless. It's not useless to the world to build the kingdom. It's not useless to the person standing in front of us. And it's not useless to save our soul. Feel that tension? (laughs) I feel it. I do. And so Paul says, faith alone in Christ alone. And James adds that it should work its way out, expressing itself in love. That there's this thing that happens when we love this world and we work this faith out in us, in the lives of the people that we're working with, in the life of the church that we're a part of. And so I want you to test yourself. Think about whether the faith in you is making a difference in the world. Whether the faith in you has, uh, is saving you, as James would say. Whether the faith in you is creating God's kingdom. Whether the faith in you is taking care of the people that he loves in the world. Whether the faith in you is brave and bold and going out into the world and making a difference. Because the other kind of faith, this childish faith, the one that we grew up and have to shed and put away, that is useless in James's language. So where are you with Jesus? I'm going to go ahead and pray. Would you, would you pray with me? Jesus, I just pray that you would illuminate, that you would bring your truth into our lives, that you would show us where we stand with you, God, that we would not hold on to a childish, worthless faith but that we would shed that and we would find a new way forward in our relationship with you, God, that you would be changing us so radically from the inside out that it would spill out into this world and make a difference everywhere we go. God, would you give us boldness and courage? Would you give us the words to say, the actions to, to, uh, to follow through on, God? Would you show us who you're drawing into our lives so that you can make a difference in theirs, God? Would you allow the faith that we have to make a difference in the world that you created, the world that you love, the world that you came and died for? Jesus, would you use us? And if there's someone here, God, that is outside of the faith, God, I make, would you make that plain to them? Would you show them that there's amount of humility necessary to surrender their will to yours, to bring themselves under your lordship and to say that, that their life is going to change because you are now a part of it? And would you guide them through that process of finding that humility, reaching out for help, and receiving you? We take this seriously, God. We examine and test ourselves to see if we still are in the faith. And would you allow the the faith that we have to make a difference in the world that you love? In Jesus' name, amen.